Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I won't go back over everything that, I know it's been a few weeks, but we were in Colossians 1 and Paul was just talking about how incredible the gospel is. And he was talking about the fact that we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. He's been really emphasizing that Jesus physically died because the the Gnostics is part of what he's combating and they denied that. They said that God could never have actually been in the flesh. And so Paul's emphasizing those physical things. We'll see that continue here this week as well. Um, And so he's been talking in glowing terms about the gospel and he's not done doing that. But he's also been talking about what his purpose is. He's been talking about why he's writing to them. And this is relevant because they don't know him. The reality is that Paul has never been to Colossae. He knows Epaphras, and Epaphras is the one who planted the church in Colossae. And Epaphras has come to Paul to tell him some of the concerns he has about the church. And so Paul's writing in relation to that. So he's kind of explaining why he's writing. Why is it his business? Why is he involved in their lives at all? Um, but he's also just glowingly talking about the gospel. And so that's what's, what's happening here as we go. And this is where he is now. So we also know, by the way, that there are a number of letters that Paul writes from prison, and this is one of those. So he says, as he's writing from prison, he says this, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And right away, we now are thrust into some of the strange language of the book of Colossians. Paul says things that just make you ponder a little bit. They have a sort of a mystery to them and a marvel to them. And I don't think that's an accident. I think he's writing in this way intentionally. So let's break it down just a little bit. He says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. That's pretty simple. He's in prison. He's undergoing suffering. He's undergoing persecution. He he has been doing this for years. He gets beaten. He gets tortured. He gets imprisoned. He gets modiculed. That is when you're mocked and ridiculed all at once. Yes. So he gets all of this happening to him all the time. And, and yet what he says to them is, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. He says, even you Colossians who I don't know, whom I've not met, I rejoice in what I'm suffering because it's on your behalf. And so that's, inter- that's interesting. That's important. That tells us something about Paul, what's important to him. He can rejoice in the suffering, not because he's a masochist, not because he likes to suffer, but he can rejoice in the suffering because of what it will produce for them. He thinks that there's something beneficial in his suffering on their behalf. And then he says this weird phrase, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. This is interesting. Well, let's take a step back for a moment and remind you what he said before this. So what is he talking about, about Christ's afflictions? Well, we know what he's talking about. He just finished telling us that Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus died, it did a number of things for us. So when he says he's filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions, the way to understand what he, can't, what he means is by knowing what he doesn't mean. In other words, there's some things that Christ did at the cross that Paul is in no way making up for, right? That's not what's lacking. That's what's done. So what are the things that Christ did? What are the things that happened through his afflictions? Well, as it says in Isaiah, he was, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He died on the cross in order to bring us, as Paul says earlier in Colossians, redemption, forgiveness of sins, and to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness 
and bring us into the kingdom of light of the son whom he loves. So what, what did Jesus do? He saved us. He rescued us. He redeemed us. He made us holy. He made us righteous. These are things that Jesus did. These are not things that Paul can do. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Paul is not saying these are things Jesus didn't do well enough. Jesus didn't save you enough. So now it's my job to step in there and make up for that. That would be not at all what Paul is saying. So whatever it is that he's saying he's doing is something that Jesus did not do. And it's clear, it's not because Jesus couldn't do it, but it's because Jesus chose not to. Jesus chose Paul to do something else that Jesus did not choose to do, which in itself is weird. Why does God choose other people to do things at all, right? That's a reasonable question. And yet, it's very much in keeping with the God of the entire scripture, right? He chose David to be a king when he could have been the king, right? He did that partly in compromise with the people because they insisted on it. But he chose prophets to speak his words when he could have sent his angels or just done it himself. He often chooses people to do things he could do, but it's important that he does. And Paul says there's something that is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's something that Jesus didn't do through the cross, something that isn't redemption. It isn't making us holy. It isn't our salvation. It isn't our eternal destiny. That's all been done by Jesus. That is not lacking. There's nothing there that's lacking. But there's something else that Paul is doing. And he gives us a little hint here. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And that sounds weird, except then he explains, I don't mean Christ's literal body. He says, which is the church. Whatever it is that Paul is doing, that he sees himself as filling up for Christ, something Christ didn't do, it has to do with the church. He does something for the church that Christ did not do, so to speak. Now, I think the other thing just to point out, and, and before we, we go any further, is that the reason he's using all this language about filling up in my flesh and for the sake of his body and suffering, the reason he's emphasizing all this is the same reason he emphasized Jesus' death in the first place. To say to the Gnostics and to the people who are hearing the Gnostics that what we do in the flesh matters. Because they were saying what you did in the flesh doesn't matter. And Paul is saying... It absolutely matters. And so he says, I rejoice in the suffering. I don't deny it. I don't pretend it's not happening. I don't pretend it's irrelevant. But I also don't collapse under it. I rejoice. I suffer and I rejoice because I believe it matters. So what exactly is it, right? What is it that is not completed? What is it that Paul is doing? Turns out that, well, not surprisingly, is a really important point. That's a good question. That's where we're going to go. But he is going to explain about his physicality and his role, but he's going to go there in an interesting way. So this is where he comes from next. So he says, I rejoice in what I was suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Jesus died on the cross, and then he left, and he said to the apostles, I'm leaving you to, to do things. I'll give you power, but I need you to do them. Something about the church, something about building the church. So we know it's related to that. Paul hasn't given us any more than that yet. But he goes on and he says this. I have become its servant. Whose servant? The church. Right, good, you're tracking. He's become the church's servant. I want to point out, I think this is kind of, if, if, if you're familiar with scripture, this is an obvious point 
but it's such an important point. And it, it so clearly draws the lines and helps us understand in our churches today what, what a pastor's role is. And the pastor's role is not to control, it's not to tell you what you're supposed to do, it's not to, to judge and scorn and condemn you, it's to serve the church. Paul saw himself, all his authority, and yes, he had authority, but as he said many times, the purpose of his authority was for the building up of others. The purpose of his authority was an authority of service. And he learned that from our Lord, who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. So he says, I've become its servant. What am I to do? I am here to serve the church. And it's, it's one thing to say that if you're standing in front of a large church. And I'm not saying that you can't stand in front of a large church and be honest and sincere about this. Of course you can. But I want you to think about Paul's position. It's one thing to say that. If you say that, if you're standing in front of a large church and you have a lot of money and you have a lot of prestige and you have a lot of power, and it's another thing to say that if you're Paul and you're sitting in a prison and you're saying, I am your servant. <laughs> well, that rings with some integrity, doesn't it? I have become its servant. And then he says, by the commission God gave me. So he's saying that God gave him a job, gave him a job. And this job involves being a servant to the church. So it's not even, it's, it's, it's something that God has called him to be. And it's what he means when he says, I'm an apostle. You may think a lot of things about apostle. We know the term apostle literally means sent out. And we may think a lot of things about the power and glory and prestige of an apostle, but to Paul, it simply means he has a commission to serve the church. So he says, I become his servant by the commission God gave me. And now he begins to give us a hint of what his commission is, of what his service looks like. And this is what he says. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. That makes sense, right? We know Paul's a preacher. We know he writes these letters, which we to this day are still parsing to understand the word of God in all its fullness, right? This is part of who Paul is. He teaches, but he gets really expansive about this. <laughs> What does it mean to teach the Word of God, to present, not even to teach, but to present to you the Word of God in all its fullness? He goes on, he says this, the mystery, so this is the fullness of the Word of God, it involves a mystery. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So Paul says, my job, my commission, my servanthood, the thing in which I rejoice, what I am filling up in my flesh. The thing that Christ did not do was to fully unveil and explain the mystery that's been eluding us forever. It's like he's saying, go back through all of history up to this point, and there's been this mystery about the universe, right? I've quoted this often because it's one of my favorite stories, and it's, there's just a nice piece of irony in it, but of course it's completely wrong, but that's okay. You know, uh, life, uh, not, nothing called life, the universe, and everything. Well, I guess it is the name of a book, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this moment where they're trying to figure out what the answer to life, the universe, and everything is, and they create this incredibly large machine, and I'll try to keep the spoiler to a minimum, not tell you more than that, but they, they create this incredibly large machine which takes a thousand or a million years or something incredible to ponder that question. And when it's all done, the answer it comes up with is 42. And then, one little spoiler, because this is the best part of the whole story, is towards the end of the whole series, our, our hero, he's trying to find out what the question is. 
And he discovers that the question is what is eight, what, eight times seven? Think about that for a moment. The question is what is eight times seven? The answer is 42. When they all realize that, our hero says the line of the entire series, the thing that I think the author was waiting to write, he says, I always knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe. But here's what's interesting. We all know it. That's what's, what's, what I love about that story. There is something fundamentally wrong with the universe, and we all know it. And there is a mystery because of that as to what the point is. There is a mystery as to how, what are we supposed to do? If it's messed up, if there's so much injustice and oppression and death and destruction and, and there's so much that's not right, what do we do with that? And through every generation and every age, says Paul, there's been a mystery. The word of God, the scripture has told us there is beauty, there is truth, there is justice, and there will be redemption, but there's been a mystery about how that would ever happen. And now Paul says, that mystery is now disclosed to the Lord's people. This is an incredible statement. Again, Paul chooses the words he chooses because he is combating the Gnostics who believe that salvation comes from knowing, be enlightened by knowing what I know. If you know what I know, then you can be as special as I am. So you just need to listen to me. And Paul is not saying that I know something special. He's saying the Lord is revealing something. And it's not even through me, but my job is to present to you this mystery. Jesus did not complete that task. Jesus did not present to everybody the answer to this mystery. And Paul says, that's why I'm here. I am in service to the church for that purpose. So how does he do this? How does he, what does it mean for him to present this mystery? He's going to tell us, but before he does that, he wants to say a little bit more about the mystery. He wants to explain it a little bit further. And then we come to a really interesting sentence. A really amazing sentence. Now, i got to say this. Some of you have read Paul or heard teachings on Paul, and it may have crossed your mind occasionally that Paul writes really long sentences and that he likes to modify his modifiers with more modifiers. And he goes all these winding directions, and sometimes that makes him a little bit difficult to understand. And I want to assure you of something. If you feel like sometimes you read Paul and you feel stupid because you don't always get it, Peter, Paul's friend and, and, and fellow apostle who presumably understood these mysteries like Paul, Peter says, in Scripture, so we know it's true because it's in Scripture, he says, Paul is hard to understand sometimes. <laughs> That's what he says. So it's okay. And in fact... I really love, I, I, I love parsing Paul's sentences. There's something I enjoy about that. I am actually a guy who kind of likes, um, you know, when you take a sentence and you, you figure out all the grammar around it and where it goes and how it fits. I kind of like that. I especially like it with Paul. I love peeling aside the modifiers. It's very satisfying to me. So I have uh, my brother, uh, Kevin, he's actually leading one of our groups now, but he's a math guy. He loves math. And he just has this delight in sort of the beauty of mathematical formulas. And I'm doing my best to explain it because I don't share that. But I can only imagine it's kind of like me when I parse aside the, the, the layers of what Paul's saying and it makes sense and it all clicks. Something very satisfying about that. Now, I've shared all that with you to say this. This next sentence confuses me. 
I don't know exactly how to parse it. And, and here's why. It's got at least four, maybe five groups of people in it. And it's got a lot of pronouns. And I can't figure out which pronouns refer to which people. And when you go to the original Greek, it doesn't help. And so I get a little lost in the weeds. I'm not exactly sure where everything needs to go. But what I do know is that the main point is abundantly clear. And I'm telling you all this because I don't want you to get lost in the weeds. I want to acknowledge up front, there's pieces here where I'm not sure who is who. And I'll try to clarify it for you as much as I can, but I want to make sure we don't miss the main points. And the way we're going to do that is when I first show you this verse. So if you're following along for a moment, stop. Because what I want to do is I want to take out all of the modifiers. And I want to give you the nut first. I want to give you the nugget and the center first. And then we'll add back in the modifiers because they do add an amazing richness, which I do want us to see. But I want to start with just the pieces that are there. So this is what he says. God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is the hope of glory. I left one modifier in there, but that's okay. He says God, actually I left several in there, but uh, I couldn't dig them all out. <laughs> Otherwise we'd just say God has chosen. We're, we're, we're okay with that much. God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. So this mystery Paul's talking about, this mystery that's been hidden, that's now been disclosed to the Lord's people, presumably the church, that's now been disclosed to the Lord's people, he says God has chosen to make known not only this mystery, but the glorious riches of this mystery. This is a little bit like Paul's phrase that he wants to unfold the fullness of the word of God. There's something so deep and rich in this he wants to get to. And he says, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. And then finally, he defines the mystery for us. He says, it's the hope of glory. God has chosen to make known to us the glorious riches of his mystery, which is the hope of glory, the depth of of this mystery, the riches of it somehow point to something that Paul calls the hope of glory. I'm sure you all know and aren't surprised, and Paul spent early part of Colossians making this clear, so this is not a spoiler, that when he talks about the mystery, we know on some level he's referring to the gospel. We know that he means the gospel is the mystery, that's where it comes, but he's going deeper in that. He's saying that the glorious riches of the gospel, that which God has chosen to reveal, they go straight to this thing this phrase, the hope of glory. So what's the hope of glory? Well, hope in Scripture is a firm expectation of the future. It's not just a desire. So this isn't the desire for glory. And this isn't a wish for glory. It's an expectation. The hope of glory. An expectation that the future will be comprised of glory. But now the question becomes, what the heck is glory? Right? I mean, we talk about glory in our lives and it seems to just mean fame right? Someone has a lot of glory. We just think they're just famous. It's not completely unrelated to the idea, but I really think one of the best ways we could, we could spend, by the way, weeks on the concept of glory in scripture. We're not going to. We're already taking a meandering uh, long way through Colossians. But I do think one of the best ways to understand the idea of glory, and particularly as it applies here, is to think of a king. Think of a king in scripture. We often hear about the glory of a king, right? If you were to name the two most glorious kings of the Old Testament of the, of the Israelites, who would you name? David Solomon. and Solomon. Good. 
How did you know that? Because you know what glory is. Because <laughs> you already have a sense of what glory means. There is a degree to which it means fame, and there's a degree to which it means reputation, right? David's reputation is huge, and Solomon's reputation is huge, but it's more than that. It's more than just reputation. Let's think about David a little bit. What was David's glory? Well, it was his success in battle. That was one thing. David was known as a glorious king because he always won. <laughs> because he fought a lot of battles and he won most of them. And that was to his glory. His power was his glory and his strength. But you know what else he was known for was his righteousness and his, his kind of doing what's right and leading his kingdom into what's right. His sense of justice and leading his kingdom into justice. So we can say his righteousness and his justice of his kingdom is also part of his reputation and part of his glory. And what is it for Solomon? What is Solomon known for first and foremost? His wisdom, right? And wives. Uh, but more than wives, wealth. Solomon is known for his wisdom and for his abundance, right? His wisdom in, in making decisions that were good for the kingdom, leading again to, ju to justice, to a lack of oppression, to equality, to fairness, and then his wealth. So you could say his glory was the, the riches of the kingdom as well as the wisdom of the kingdom. So we see these things in David and Solomon. We see power and we see righteousness and we see wisdom and we see riches. And we say, is that glory? It's all pieces of it. I think the way to think about glory as you think about this is what was the glory for David and Solomon? It was the kingdom. Their glory was their kingdom. And, and, and for, script, for scripture, it's very clear about what a king's success is based on. It's based on justice and no poverty. So wealth is part of it. It's based on equality. It's based on righteousness. We're told a king's job is to bring justice in an unjust world. So we do see that in many ways, glory is about reputation, but it's not just undeserved reputation. When you think about it, the idea of glory for a king is you could sort of describe it as it's a reputation based upon the reality of the goodness that he produces. The ability to make things right is what a king's glory rests in. And I think this is true of God as well. Scripture often equates God's righteousness, his justice, his wisdom, his power, his abundance with his glory. In one sense, our world is currently mired in injustice, sin, famine, and oppression. <laughs> but we're told the gospel is God's cosmic plan to fix it all, all of it. See, the gospel isn't just about redeeming you. The gospel is God's plan to bring everything under the headship of Christ and in so doing to return Christ's glory to him. But that doesn't just mean making Christ famous. It means making Christ famous for all the good things that are going to happen when he's in charge of everything again. That's the glory of Jesus. We're told that the angels are impressed by the glory of Jesus when they see it in relationship to our salvation. His love for us is his glory. His desire for justice is his glory. Everything that we think of as beauty or goodness or justice or life or wealth or comfort, anything, anything that to you takes a wrong world and makes it right, 
That's God's glory. See, Paul is saying what we know is that everything will be made right. Everything will be made right. And Paul is telling us that now God has revealed to us the mystery, the richness of us, just what it really means to be made right, how rich that is, and the hope of that rightness. The hope of glory. We can be confident that such glory will come because God has revealed this mystery. We can know that the end will be perfect. That there will be not one injustice left. There will not be one sorrow existing. There will not be one oppression still oppressing. There will not be one person forgotten or one piece of poverty anywhere. I think that is a mystery. How do we get from the world we're in now to a place where everything is right? How do we get from 42 to 56? How do we get from fundamentally wrong to thoroughly, completely, 100% right? We want it. We desire it. It's the mystery we've sought after forever. What is the mystery to making the world right? Is it political? Is it sociological? Is it psychological? Is it self-actualization? Is it cultural change? Is it science? Is it enlightenment? Is it education? Is it philosophy? What is the answer to make this universe work? And Paul says, that's now been revealed. The hope of glory. The confidence of perfection. Of rightness. Of beauty, of truth, of righteousness, of goodness. See, the gospel is not, in Paul's mind, a creed about self-actualization. It's not first and foremost about how you feel better. It's not first and foremost, it's not even just about living a better life. It's not even just about you alone being better. It's a truth about the happy ending of the story. It's a truth about the happy ending of the universe. It's the recognition that Douglas Adams, author of the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just forgot the name of the book for a second. It's the realization that he's wrong. That at its core, there isn't something fundamentally wrong with the universe, and we'll see it. And we have that confidence, and we have that hope. That's the hope of glory. But let's add back in some of the words, because it gets, if anything, even more amazing. But honestly, if you were to... I'm not... You don't have to do this. But if you were to stop now, if you were to turn this off, if you were to get up and walk out, please don't do that. My, my self-esteem won't survive that. But if, if you were to stop at this point and just spend the rest of your month and the month after that and the month after that wrestling with what it means, the hope of glory, you will not go wrong. That in itself. If you can begin to sense the awe that comes from the hope of glory, you're on the right track. And yet, I took out some of the really important modifiers. <laughs> Let's start with the ones that are slightly confusing and less important to our point, but still there. He starts, he says, to them God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is the hope of glory. Who is them? It appears to me, if you look at the immediate verse before it, he talks about the church or the Lord's people right? That the mystery has been disclosed to the Lord's people. And so it could mean to them, 
the Lord's people. He has chosen to make this known. Interestingly enough, you could actually read this so that it says to Paul and the other apostles has been made known the riches. Either one works. It doesn't matter. Again, doesn't change the meaning here of the rest of this verse. So that's fine. Let's just go with that. Let's not confuse ourselves by exploring too many other possibilities here. Let's just say, to the Lord's people, he has chosen to make known the glorious riches of his mystery. That makes sense. That works. That we know something. We know this mystery, and it's incredible. We know this mystery. We know the hope of glory. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, among the Gentiles. This is where I get a little confused because I can't figure out if he's made it known to them and then made it known among the Gentiles. Is that two people to whom he's made it known? Or is that one people and the Gentiles are part of the them? I get confused. You don't have to share my confusion, so let me just say this. One thing we do know about Paul is other times and other verses, other, other books, specifically Romans, when he talks, he also talks about the mystery of the gospel other times when he talks about it, he very much emphasizes that one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that the Gentiles are part of it. That the Gentiles, are, are, they're included in this. Now, what's interesting to me is if you take those two things together, without going too far here, but if you take the idea that to the church, to the Lord's people, he has revealed this, and then he says, among the Gentiles, it might be a way of making it very clear to the people who thought of themselves as the Lord's people, that being the Jews, that they're not the only ones who get this mystery. That unlike the Gnostics, Paul isn't interested in narrowing the mystery and saying only a few select people get it. Paul is interested in saying, guess what? God's revealing it to everybody. Everybody can be part of this. Absolutely everybody can be part of this. And by saying among the Gentiles, he's saying it's even being revealed through the Gentiles. Not just to them, but even through them. How crazy is that? So those are the, they, those can get confusing, but those are, those are the parts that are less startling, no matter what they mean. He simply means that God is revealing it now to anyone. And, and if you really break it down, he's saying this. Why, why is he choosing only to reveal the mystery to the church? Well, he's not. He's revealing to everyone, but the church is the, the only people who are the mystery revealed to them are those who open their eyes and see it. That's all he's saying. Whether you're Gentile or Jew, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. No matter where you're at, the mystery's the same. If you receive it and you see it, then you receive it. By definition, he's revealed it to those to whom it's been revealed. <laughs> but it's the other modifier that I've left out, which is the most impressive. The one where I think Paul really wants to say something kind of incredible and new. See, he says this, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is, and he actually says something, and then says the hope of glory. Now, if I were to ask you without having ever read this scripture before, if I were to come to you and say, what do you think goes in that blank? Who do you think is the hope of glory? You would all give the right answer, which would be Jesus, right? That's the answer. And it's true. Of course it's true. You know, Jesus is the hope of glory. He is the redeemer. That in itself would be appropriate and correct. But Paul wants to make a much stronger, much more radical, much more interesting point. And it's this. He says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ, 
in you the hope of glory. Now, wait a minute. Having our name, our pronoun in there anywhere connected with the hope of glory feels wrong. <laughs> and, and I'll show you how wrong, and it would be wrong if he didn't have Christ in there at all. If he just said, the, uh, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is you, the hope of glory. I hope that you would all go, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. And yet this is a message outside the church, and this is a message the Gnostics were given. That it's just you, and it's just what's in you that's the hope of glory. But you know what? We have had thousands and thousands of years as a species to prove the fallacy of that idea. Really? I mean, don't you? I mean, even if you think we've made progress, and I do, there's certain things we haven't made any progress on ever. Jealousy and hatred and war and murder and crime and, and racism. I mean, it's just like as societies we make, make progress, but as human beings... Those are as big monsters as they've ever been. We, we are not reaching towards a hope of glory. In fact, time after time after time of trying to create political utopias have failed. Effort after effort after effort of creating a heaven on earth has failed. And if you think we just need another couple thousand years to get it right, I think you're looking at a different kind of hope than Scripture talks about. I call that wishful thinking. I call that throw some dust in the air and hope it comes down as fairy dust. It's just kind of doesn't make any sense. So it is weird that we're in this at all. But it's also interesting that Paul doesn't simply say that it's this disembodied, unengaged, uninvolved Christ who is the hope of glory. It would be true to say that, but he doesn't. There's a point he's making here, and that's that the hope of glory is Christ in you. There's something about those together which is amazing, which is, which is incredible, which is grandiose. There is this weird thing about Christianity, which we have to hold. There's so many tensions in Christianity, and this is one of them. And one of the tensions we have to hold is that we are not the hope of glory. And we are not the center of the universe. I, 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 if, <laughs> how many of you have ever been a child? Okay. I was going to ask how many of you have had children, but this is a better question because we've all been a child. And then you probably know the truth. And that's that we're all born with the conviction we are the center of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We all go through the Copernican shift individually, or maybe we don't. But we, we all have this desire and this thinking, this thought that we're the center of the universe. We are the hope of glory, that we can fix everything, that we can solve everything, that we're Messiah, we're the Savior, we're the fixer, we're the hero. It would be great, but it just isn't. <laughs> it's just not true. And most of us get old enough, we realize at a certain point it isn't true. And we even are able to see those who don't grow out of that as foolish, don't we? People who live their whole lives feeling like they're the center of the universe or they're the savior of the world or they're the hope for all mankind, we all begin to recognize the foolishness of such thinking. So we have to hold that tension. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the hope of glory. And yet, at the same time, God has this incredible cosmic plan in which everything is going to be redeemed and then he puts us right smack dab in the middle of it and says, I'm going to do it through you. 
well, how are we supposed to deal with that? <laughs> Jesus says, my cosmic plan, my plan to redeem the entire universe, it has to do with me being in you. I mean, if he'd asked me, I would have said that feels limiting for him. He didn't ask me. Because it's not my plan. <laughs> because I'm not the center of the universe. He says, I'm going to be in the, in the middle and I'm going to be in you and somehow that's going to do it. And Paul weaves all these ideas together. This idea of Christ being in you, it has to do with the revelation. It's part of the way people see the mystery. They see it through you. They see the hope of glory through people who live with Christ in them. Then they see that hope of glory. That's incredible. That's amazing. And some days it just feels impossible. He goes on, he says this, He, that is Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend. Now, before we finish this sentence, we've now finally gotten to Paul's commission. Paul, when he says he's here to teach the fullness of the word, when he says he's here to explain, to present to people the mystery, he believes the way he presents the mystery is by leading everyone to maturity in Christ, to make sure that everybody is taught and admonished to proclaim Jesus to everyone, to teach everyone what it means to live with Christ in us and to let that be reflected in our lives, to be mature in Christ, meaning that he is the center and he says, this is what I strenuously contend. This is what I earnestly strive for. This is why I'm in prison. This is why I rejoice in my suffering, because this is what life is for me, says Paul. It's about your maturity. It's about your growth. It's about you showing the world who Christ is by being mature enough to do that, by living that life and reflecting that. But then Paul does something that he does a lot, and I love it. It's brilliant, and he does it a lot in his writings, and that's that right in the middle of his explanation, he's also demonstrating and exemplifying what he's sharing with us, revealing to us that he's just like us, and we can be just like him. He says this, To this end I strenuously contend with all my energy and might that is in me. Does he say that? Nope. He says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's just finished saying the hope of glory is Christ in you. And then he turns around and says, in my commission, you know what the hope of glory is? The hope of completion is? It's Christ in me. There's this tension. I work with everything I have, but I know that what I have is not enough. What I'm really working with is the energy of Christ who powerfully works within me. I suspect most of us would be shy about going into our focus groups one day and saying, I am here today to bless you with all the energy of Christ who works so powerfully in me. <laughs> and I'm not recommending you try that because if they haven't listened to this message, they might indeed think you're boasting. But Paul didn't see it as a boast. And Paul gives this example telling us he does it not to say, look, I'm superior to you. I know how to use the power of Christ because that would be entirely not what Paul is thinking. Because Christ is not something to be used. 
He's, he's not showing to them he's superior. He's showing to them that he is just like them. Paul is an example for church leadership that we need to embrace and follow and look for and seek. And those of us in leadership need to try to exemplify and understand ourselves more and more. This idea that Paul is a servant for the church, to the church. And in that servanthood, he functions not with a specialness that nobody else has, but with the same specialness that everybody else has. There is something special about Paul ministering with, the Christ, with Christ's power through him. But he wants to, what he wants us to know is there's also something special about you ministering with that same Christ in you. And what you do may not be what he does. You know, it's interesting that we know what Paul did. He was a church planter, he was a teacher, he was a preacher, and he went across the, the, the world planting churches and then going to the next one, planting churches, building up leaders as he went. Not once in any of his letters, in any of his public letters, does he say to people in the church, I need some of you to do what I'm doing. Not once. I don't know. It almost feels like he should. Surely he needed help. Now, I suspect when he spoke individually to people, he did that. I mean, I suspect like with Timothy or Epaphras or others, he may have said to them, hey, I think you should join me on this. <laughs> I think you should plant churches. But he didn't say that to everybody. You know why? Because he knew it wasn't what everybody was supposed to do. But what he does say to everybody is, hey, Christ is in you, and you should share that with other people. This is why focus is what focus is. This is why, I mean the church, not the word. This is why we do what we do. It's because we believe that maturity is developed not because one person has a special ability to reflect the power of Christ in others, but because all of us are the hope of glory. Because all of us have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Because if you want things to be made right in your circle, you do that by living as Christ in you is living. You do that by sharing your grace is another way we talk about it. Your supernatural gifting. You do that by engaging with your group and strenuously contending with all your might for their benefit, for their maturity, for their wisdom, but you also do it understanding it's what Christ has given you to do. So that ultimately we should not be bashful about saying, I am serving you with the power of Christ. <laughs> now, hopefully it's true. And it may be a lot of wrestling for us to even understand what that looks like. But Paul's wrestled with it for years. And so he can say that with confidence. How is a fallen world even supposed to know what glory is? How is a fallen world even supposed to know what goodness is? How are they supposed to see the hope of glory? <laughs> Christ in you. The grandiose, the incredible, the cosmic plan of Jesus, but they're going to see it through the very mundane lives that you live as he expresses it through you. This is that tension. The world has changed as you do what you do. But you do it by faith and this connection to Christ. And then people will have hope. They will have hope that things can be okay. It was interesting when I, uh, my last church plant before this one years and years ago, I had somebody who came, came with me and I didn't know them very well. I was frankly surprised when they came. 
not surprised that they only stayed about two months, but they came, and what they did say to me, though, was interesting. They said, I'm coming on this church plant with you because when I'm with you, I just feel like things are going to be okay. I guess two months later, <laughs> he wasn't convinced of that, but that's okay. <laughs> I liked what he said because I think that's a piece of the hope of glory. This is what we believe at Focus, that our mission in life that our co-mission from God is to be committed to the maturity and growth of each other, to be full of effort and intention while recognizing that it's Christ in us that does the work. And if that sounds like a huge thing, it is. But I want you to remember again that it's this incredible cosmic plan worked out through the mundane actions of love and care that we're called to do any, every day. And that's what our groups are about. Not just support, although there is that. Not just care, although there is that. But maturity and faith building, and pointing people to the hope of glory, to the confidence. You know, one of the things we tell our group leaders is it is actually a mistake to feel like as a group leader you have to have resolved all questions before the group is over. It's a mistake to feel like you have to teach people that every group they come to, we're going to answer all their questions and we're going to make everything okay. Because number one, it's impossible. But number two, it robs from them the deeper lesson, which is that God is going to make everything okay. And we'll give you hints of it. We'll give you tastes of it. And we'll make everything as okay as we can. I'm not saying we don't, we're like, I'm not going to make things okay when I can. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we recognize, we help them understand God is much bigger. And he is working through us and he is working through them and he will make everything okay. But he in us is the hope of glory. Paul goes on, he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not met me personally. Paul even says to them, I want you to understand, this is my life. See, this is also what we're learning about Paul. This is it. This is his heart. This is his drive. This is his passion. This is his motivation. This is his life. Is presenting everyone mature in Christ. And he says, I am doing it, and I contend for all of the church, even for those of you who don't know me. I want you to know that when I'm here in prison and I'm suffering and I'm writing these letters and I'm praying and I'm preaching the gospel and I'm planning churches, I am working on your behalf because that's the commission I have. I am not Paul. And I can only hope in a not confident expectation way that by the end of my life, I will have one half of the ability to make state some of these things with the confidence Paul does. But I do understand this heart. Because it's not something I've created, but I do want to say to you, because I believe it's true, and because I believe God suckered me into this. I can't stop pastoring churches. I tried. <laughs> I can't stop caring about the maturity of other people. I tried. It is my life. This is why we do what we do. And there are some of you in focus groups and on Facebook who barely know me. And I'm, more, I'm good with that. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. I want you to know that I'm contending for you, even though you don't know me. I want you to know that I'm praying for you and, and, I'm, and every study I create and every teaching I give is to push that, is to present you mature in Christ. 
to help you see the glory and benefit of a life which is focused on our commission of Christ in us being the hope of glory. He goes on, he says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. What do I want, he says, as I contend for you, if I don't know you, I'm not there. What is my goal? It's that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. There's that mystery again. Now he's just honing in on Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory, that's part of the mystery. But he says the way we get there is by teaching everybody that Christ is the mystery in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we talk about Christ and you being the hope of glory, the thing that we do for each other is not pretend that any one of us are experts on all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not me, not you, not your group leader. Christ is. And he is the only one. And the best thing we can do for each other is push each other towards Christ. That is the best thing we can do, and that's not a small thing. I can absolutely say this about focus on my desires. That one of the reasons I've taken a step back in typical pastoral roles, the reason I'm okay that I don't even know some of you, the reason that I give so much freedom to our focus group leaders is because I do believe that Christ is the head of the church. And there's so much confusion these days with pastors who take a strong hand. And so I try to lead with conviction and compulsion and determination and strength of all the power of Christ that is in me. But I also try to lead with all the conviction that it's Christ in me and in you and in your leaders. And I try to step back and let you guys do the work. He goes on, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. This is actually the last verse we're going to read tonight. Because this also is my heart. I have, I have a grief these days that I have never had until the last few years. And it's a grief of realizing that some of the people who in my life have seemed most clear-headed a real grief that some of the people in my life who have seemed the most clear-headed and clear-hearted who've seemed to be so focused on Christ are today deceived by fine-sounding arguments and I feel no glee in that I feel no judgment and condemnation I just feel sorrow There are a lot of fine-sounding arguments out there. Actually, there's a lot of real dumb-sounding arguments out there, too. And unfortunately, we're deceived by both. <laughs> I think in Paul's mind, a fine-sounding argument is often a dumb argument. It just sounds good at a moment. It's interesting that the early church wrestled with Gnosticism, and throughout my pastoral life, I've run into people who have been deceived by Gnosticism, literal Gnosticism, today. There was a research of it about in the 70s, books about Gnosticism. Materialism, both as, a, as an economic plan, that, that grabbing more stuff will make you happier, and materialism as a, as a philosophy of, of science, that only what you can see is real, are fine-sounding arguments that are leaving people hollow and empty. 
political arguments are very often fine-sounding arguments that are hollow and empty. Moral relativism is hollow and empty. The idea that you are the hope of glory is hollow and empty. I'm kind of convinced those kind of arguments that we are the hope of glory, that you yourself are all that you need, they, 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 are so in, they are so dangerous because they make us feel good and I think they're not only hollow, but they actually hollow us out. I think they leave us with less than nothing, if that's possible. There's a lot of arguments out there, a lot of philosophies, and they sound good sometimes. And that is my concern for my church. That is my concern for focus. That is my concern for each focus group. I've just become convinced that we don't deal with that by clamping down on discussion. We don't deal with that by being afraid of questions. We don't deal with that by telling people they can have to believe what I believe. We deal with that by pushing people ever and always to the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ in you. Bottom line is this. When you think about this idea of Christ in you being the hope of glory, I think Christ in you, it, it's the counter to the hollowness of all these other arguments. Why is Christ not a hollow argument? Because he's in you. He is the substance. He is the center. And I think that's true not only of people, but as Paul says, it's true of the entire universe. I think the bottom line is this. When Christ is recognized as the center of everything, then everything else fits where it belongs. Why is the world wrong? Because Christ has allowed himself for a time, he's, or rather, I can put it this way, he's allowed you for a time to choose what you want to be the center of your universe. It won't be real but he's going to let you experience how unreal it is. But he tells us that he's moving everything to a place and he started with you and me by becoming the center of us. And as we live as if he's the center of us, not an add-on, not an idea, not a philosophical construct, but the center, the substance and the core of who we are, then the hope of glory comes from that because the hope of glory is the idea that Christ will be at the center of the universe. And as he is at the center where he belongs, everything else suddenly makes sense. 42 becomes 56, if you will. He's the missing equation. It's really important. As long as we perceive Christianity as another good idea, as long as we perceive it only as a way to be nice to other people, which, if you do that, that's better than not. <laughs> but as long as we perceive it only as a way to be nice to other people, only as something to entertain us on Sundays or even in our groups, if we perceive it only as something that we use, it'll never quite be right. But when we make this the year of eternal things by putting Christ at the center of all of our life, then other things will make sense. Now, they won't ultimately make sense until the whole universe is aligned again. But the hope of glory is that if he can do it with you, he can do it with the whole universe. And that's the mystery that's been revealed.
Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.